different opportunities for us to jump into constantly. We are spurring one another on to love and good deeds, just like the passage is going to call for this morning. Let's turn to Hebrews chapter 10. We're going to start reading in verse 19. If you need a Bible, you can raise your hand and one of the ushers will pass one to you. Last week, Austin did a great job really capping off the first arc, the first teaching arc of the book of Hebrews, talking about the superiority of Jesus as a sacrifice over and above the sacrifices of the Old Testament system. And the message was, no longer do we need to be part of this wearying repetition of trying to justify ourselves before God and before others like the Old Testament system promoted. You know, it was all these sacrifices, it was all these religious practices that could never really address the true deeper problem of sin in our hearts and minds. Now, that is addressed through the sacrifice of Jesus, through the all-sufficient sacrifice of Jesus on the cross. We have received that forgiveness. Our sin is done away with, as well as its consequences. It is remembered no more against us. Uh, This is a beautiful thing. Now, we don't need to strive and try to earn something we could never earn. We can rest. We can rest in the sufficiency of Jesus' sacrifice. We don't need to fake. We don't need to fake like we don't need it, like we've got it all together. Guys, we can just all accept the fact that the message of the gospel is no one made it. No one could have earned it. No one could have achieved it. No one is perfect. It's sort of like the AA meeting. Uh, For those who've been through AA, a lot of people will say, what a freeing environment. Because everybody who's come to this gathering all agrees. We've struggled. And so when they go up and they share, they just share openly. It's not a secret. This is where I'm at. This is who I am. And then a lot of times those folks will come into church and they'll say, well, church is nothing like that because nobody's open. Everybody's trying to show almost that they don't need the grace of God. But that's not the case at all. This is like AA on another level. Okay, your sin doesn't manifest the same way as my sin and weakness, but we all come into it saying, man, I have sin." And I could not achieve salvation for myself or forgiveness for myself. I need grace. You need grace. But the message of Hebrews 10 in the early part was that grace is for us abundantly through the sacrifice of Jesus. Now, what's so wonderful is we're going to turn the page. Because the first ten and a half chapters of the book of Hebrews has all been this message of the superiority of Jesus. And it's been Jesus, 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 right? Look how great. Look how grand. Look how magnificent. But in light of how magnificent Jesus is. How are we to live? And that's what these next couple chapters are going to be about, starting with this morning. Knowing what we know of the superiority of Jesus, how are we to then live? Let's hear Hebrews chapter 10, starting in verse 19. The verses will be on the screens. Therefore, brothers and sisters, therefore, in light of the ten and a half chapters on Jesus' superiority, Since we have confidence to enter the most holy place by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way open for us through the curtain, that is, Jesus' body, and since we have a great priest over the house of God, let us draw near to God with a sincere heart and with the full assurance that faith brings, having our hearts sprinkled to cleanse us from a guilty conscience, and having our bodies washed with pure water, Let us hold unswervingly to the hope we profess, for he who promised is faithful. And let us consider how we may spur one another on toward love and good deeds, not giving up meeting together, 
as some are in the habit of doing, but encouraging one another, and all the more as you see the day approaching. If we deliberately keep on sinning after we have received the knowledge of the truth, no sacrifice for sins is left, but only a fearful expectation of judgment and of raging fire that will consume the enemies of God. Anyone who rejected the law of Moses died without mercy on the testimony of two or three witnesses. How much more severely do you think someone deserves to be punished who's trampled the Son of God underfoot, who's treated as an unholy thing the blood of the covenant that sanctified them, and who has insulted the Spirit of grace? For we know him who said, It is mine to avenge, I will repay, and again the Lord will judge his people. It is a dreadful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. Remember those earlier days after you had received the light, when you endured in a great conflict full of suffering, sometimes you were publicly exposed to insult and persecution. At other times, you stood side by side with those who were so treated. You suffered along with those in prison and joyfully accepted the confiscation of your property because you knew that you yourselves had better and lasting possessions. So do not throw away your confidence. It will be richly rewarded. You need to persevere so that when you have done the will of God, you will receive what he has promised. For in just a little while, he who is coming will come and will not delay. And, but my righteous one will live by faith, and I take no pleasure in the one who shrinks back. But we do not belong to those who shrink back and are destroyed, but to those who have faith and are saved. So there's a little bit of rebuke. At the end of chapter 10 here, and a lot of encouragement. I know you probably felt a little bit of the rebuke. Starting to get into verses 26 and on, there's something about raging fire. You might have felt your temperature increase a little bit. Did it get a little hot in here? You know, sweating a little bit? Yeah. There's some rebuke in this, and we'll get to that. But it's all in the context of encouragement. There's a lot of encouragement here. And as I said at the outset, I mean, the writer's just been magnifying Jesus, 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 but now he wants to stoke a response, prompt a response from those of us who placed our faith in him. And the first thing that he wants to prompt, the first thing that he wants to call forth in us is confidence, boldness, assurance in our standing with God. See it there in verse 19. Since we have this confidence to enter the most holy place, that is the presence of God by the blood of Jesus, by this new and living way open for us. And then he says, you know, Jesus' body is like this curtain. The curtain in the Old Testament separated people from the presence of God. It was the passageway through which the high priest would enter into the presence of God. But now we have this new curtain. It's the body of Jesus offered on the cross that opens the way. And he says, since we have this high priest who doesn't just have this limited access, but has this unlimited VIP access to God and is letting us into that presence. Since we have that, verse 22, let us draw near to God with a sincere heart and the full assurance that faith brings. So he says, have confidence. And then he says, I want you to lay hold of this full assurance that faith brings. Now I want us to really grasp the level of boldness, assurance, confidence that we as believers are called to project as we approach and as we live with the presence of God in our lives. It's sort of like the level of confidence and comfort and security that's called forth as what we would have entering into our own home. Guys, when I enter into my own home, I have a level of confidence 
I have a level of assuredness entering into my own home. I don't wonder outside the door, am I allowed in? You know, I don't mill around. I don't enter in and then think, is somebody going to kick me out? You know, my marriage is not in that place right now. I, I feel confident. I feel assured when I'm at home, right? It, it's probably the most secure place. It's my sanctuary. That's my special place, right? My home. Think about yourselves at home. Is that where you feel the most comfort, the most secure? Is it not? If it's not, pastors want to meet with you after service and we can pray about whatever conflict's going on in your household. But for the most part, like, that's my space. And some of you, I hope you feel that when you come into church community, you enter into this gathering and you feel sort of that same, you know, level of comfort and confidence and assuredness. Others of you probably wonder, do I belong here? Am I like the people here? But the writer of Hebrews is saying, I don't want you to have any doubt in your mind when you're coming into the presence of God, when you're thinking about your relationship with God, you should feel as secure as you feel in your own home because he's your father and he's opened the way. The front door is open. The invitation is there. Draw near to me. Feel that sense of security. Now, some might accuse us as believers who aren't believers. How could these guys be so arrogant So as to assume that we belong to God and in his house. What is so special about us that we should be so confident approaching the presence of God or living securely in the presence of God? What's so special about us? But that's not the message of the gospel. That's not what we contend. We don't say that we gained access by our own merits. Like, does a heart attack patient take credit for reviving himself when he comes back from the dead. <laughs> no way. What happens to a heart attack patient? When, when you experience a heart attack, you are incapacitated. You have nothing you can do to help yourself. You are unconscious. You are on death's doorstop, right? I mean, you're, you're right there, and someone has to come in and revive you, and that's the message of the gospel. We all agree together that we are spiritually incapacitated. We are spiritually unable to assist ourselves, and we are on death's doorstep. But it was Jesus who revived us. It's Jesus' sacrifice that cleanses the guilty conscience and sanctifies our bodies. Verse 22, let us draw near to God with a sincere heart and with the full assurance that faith brings. Where's that assurance coming from? Where's that confidence coming from? Where's that boldness coming from? It's that we've had our hearts sprinkled to cleanse it from a guilty conscience and having our bodies washed. That's what's happened with pure water through our faith in Christ. Think about that verse. Leave that verse on the screen. Think about that verse and the portion of the verse that we represent. What's our part in the gospel story? Our part in the gospel story is that we brought to God a guilty conscience. Our part in the story is that we had unclean bodies. That's our testimony. That is the baseline truth. Every single person in here is affirming just the same as everybody else. You know what we all had in common? A guilty conscience before God. We had an unclean body. We're just like everybody else apart from God. You know, like it said a couple weeks ago, we're all appointed to live and then die and then face judgment. Apart from Christ, we were going to face that judgment with a guilty conscience. There would be that lingering fear of the unknown. But God did something real and tangible to grant us and gift us the confidence instead of the feelings of filth and guilt. Think of it like if you and I 
entered into a state of real financial debt. Real financial debt. We got ourselves into a real pickle. What happens when you're in financial trouble? It nags at you. This is one of those things that really gets in your head. And in Orange County, like you don't even have to be in financial trouble for money to get into your head. Uh, you can be doing really well. I know a lot of people have done really well, but money is just in their mind. It, it's a poison. It's a spiritual sickness when, when money lays a hold of you. But certainly when we're in financial trouble, what can money do to us? It can keep us up at night. It can keep us awake. And just imagine you've got this massive financial debt and you're thinking about it and you're anxious about it, just like you can be anxious even when you have abundance. But you know there's a day those debts are coming due. And you know the day that those debts come due, your life is over. It is ruined. Everything that you have is going to be taken away and repossessed. That is the weight of our sin spiritually, the guilt that rests upon us. As we go about our lives, we're racking up this spiritual indebtedness before God, falling short of His divine purpose for our lives. And whether we recognize it or not, and some people do all that they can to ignore that this is happening, there is a day of reckoning. There is a day those debts come due, a day of accountability. And this life that you think is yours, you're going to discover you have a creator, you have a maker. You didn't give yourself life, and that life is going to be repossessed. But the gospel is this, that one with exceeding wealth has arrived on the scene to pay your debts in full, and you are debt-free. That is the gift of God in Jesus. God did not say, oh, I'm just going to throw out the rules. I'm a cool guy. Let's just forget about it. He said, no, I'm just, and I'm righteous. A debt is a debt, and you all have a debt, and I have a debt, but I'm going to love you so much, I'm going to go all the distance to cover that debt for you, maintaining my justice but paying the bills so that you can be free of the burden and the consequences of that sin. That's the gospel message. And let me tell you, when your debts are paid, your debts are paid. When it's a zero-dollar balance, it's a zero-dollar balance. When you've got that day of accountability coming, you're not worried because there's nothing that's going to be repossessed because everything is already paid for. You're cleansed. You're washed. You know, as Austin mentioned last week, these believers, they weren't secure in that. They weren't confident. They weren't bold in that truth. And they thought, oh, maybe Jesus is good, but it's not enough. So I've got to also supplement it with some of these old practices that we left. And in Orange County, there's all these temptations like, I want to be whole. I want to be good. I want that feeling of feeling that my conscience is clear and that like I've got everything I should have. So I'm going to pursue beauty and youthfulness and wealth and advancement in the workplace and all these different things. I'm going to wash myself, right? I'm going to cleanse myself. I'm going to make myself better. But washing, either with those Old Testament practices or pursuing all these different empty pursuits in Orange County, it's like washing yourself with dirty water. You just remain just as dirty, if not dirtier, than when you began. Jesus alone is righteous and holy and good. You don't need to take my word for it. You can go into the word of God and you can see exactly who he is. He is the sole source, the sole well of the water that actually cleanses our souls. Now, when you understand those benefits, when you get that, the confidence available, the burden that you end up being released of, the full assurance and security and comfort 
that faith brings, then you know why the writer says what he says next in verses 23 to 25. When you get Jesus, when you get what he's accomplished, you understand why he says, now hold unswervingly to the hope that we profess. Spur one another on, he says. Don't give up meeting together, but encourage one another daily. It's all these action words, verses 23 to 25. Hold the ground, push forward, don't back down, encourage. And what I picture when I read those verses, 23 to 25, is like this massive tug-of-war rope. And all the believers are on one side of that tug-of-war rope, on the rope together. And and I want to clarify that. A lot of us think of our faith in terms of it being like a personal faith in Jesus. It's characterized like that a lot. And, and that's true. There is a personal component to the decision that we make to place our trust in Jesus, to follow Jesus. He is our shepherd, personally speaking. But your personal faith is linked up with all the other personal faiths of everyone around you. Because we're on this rope, this tug-of-war rope, on this line together. And there is a battle that is going on, a tug-of-war battle, a spiritual battle that's taking place. Maybe you're aware of it, maybe you're not. But there are forces that are visible and invisible that are constantly pulling on us back into conformity with the world's values, back into the old sins that we left behind, back into an unproductive life of just serving ourselves, forgetful of our boldness and confidence in Jesus and forgetful of our maker and divine purpose. And here in Hebrews, we have the team captain, right? The pastor of this letter who's able to see all the dynamics at play with this Hebrew church. And he's saying, wake up, hold the line, grab on guys and pull, be a part of this thing. We got to spur each other on. We're on this rope together. When you let go of the line, we lose strength. You need to know that. When you let go of the line, we lose strength. When you give up meeting, when you say, oh, I'm not going to be at that, or you show up, but you're not really showing up, you know what I mean, and you, and you get checked out, and you, and you write yourself off, and you write yourself out, and you say, oh, I don't really get the point, I don't really see where I belong, I don't really see my purpose, on and on and on and on. All the reasons that you just let go of the line. That just makes the momentum shift all the more in the other direction for the rest of us. That robs the confidence of those around you. That makes the weight that everyone else has to pull all the heavier. Hold, the writer says. Remember your divine purpose in Jesus. He saved you that you would produce love and good deeds, a reflection of the gospel. Encourage one another to take ground because we're not on this like endless loop that Orange County, like it tricks us into thinking we're on this like endless loop of personal indulgence and self-advancement. You know, and oh, life just goes on and every day we're going to advance a little further and we're going to enjoy ourselves a little bit more and it's just going to go on and on and on into eternity, right? No, 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 no. That's deceit. That's a lie. We're not on an endless loop. History is headed in a direction. Jesus is going to return. Life is short. We're going to be held to account before him. Heaven is in front of us. Are we living for it? And as much as we should be motivating each other by what we have and what's in front of us in heaven, we have to be real, too, about what lies before us if we regress, if we do actually fully give up. 
And those are the sobering words there in verses 26 to 31. You know, the ones about raging fire and it's a dreadful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. Those words, I'm going to be honest with you, they do not disturb me. Words like that in the Bible, I've become accustomed to reading passages like that, and they don't disturb me, and I don't want them to disturb you. And here's the reason. There's a purpose in those warnings, in those difficult passages in the Scriptures. They are sobering. They are sobering. And being sober from time to time, all the time, is a good thing, right? I want you to realize that. Like, there's sometimes you're going to read devotionally, and because of your disposition and because of how you receive, you know, discipline and rebuke, you, you read and you read, and then, whoa, raging fire. And you're like, I got to check out. La, 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 la. Let's move on to the nice stuff. You know, and you want to work around it, or you, or you just keep saying, I don't get it. I don't get it. Why is that in the Bible? Why is that in the Bible? Guys, take it as a sobering reality. It's like, guys, do you want to make a monumental financial decision when you're blisteringly drunk? Is that the time to be making big moves with your money? When you're absolutely schnockered? Is that the time to say, I'm going to sign up for 10 credit cards and load them up with debt? That is not the time to be making financial decisions. But every day, we're making monumental spiritual decisions even in the mundane but many people in Orange County are making those decisions metaphorically drunk, ungrounded spiritually, or caffeinated, <laughs> metaphorically caffeinated. Let me tell you, I love that, that like, you know, the fake, funny advertisement, uh, that poster that says, I don't know if you've ever seen this, drink coffee, do stupid things faster and with more energy. That's like the propaganda for coffee. But, but that's the spirituality of Orange County. We're either metaphorically drunk or we're metaphorically crunk. Like, we're one of the other two, right? And this is a passage that, like, sobers us up. It orients our spiritual senses and grounds us in reality with what's at stake. You know, it's like those signs that exist sometimes in a national park monument. There's, like, this massive gorge. You're on the cliffside, and there'll be this sign now. They actually have to put a sign out that says, Don't take a selfie on the edge. Don't go past the barrier. And there might even be a stick figure holding a selfie stick falling, you know, to their demise. And, and it's not pleasant as a visual. It kind of mars the view, right? But you better obey the truth of that sign or you're going to end up as a tragic clickbait story on the front page of some news website, right? And so the writer rightly is warning us, if we let go of the line of Jesus and we go to any other system or back where we came from, what sacrifice and provision for sin is there going to be anymore? Verses 28 to 29. If God righteously upheld the standards of the Mosaic law, and at times it called for the death penalty, what do you think is the right punishment for someone who profanes, who tramples upon the literal Lord of heaven and earth, that is, Jesus? With a cleansed mind... You know, and that guilt washed away through the sacrifice of Jesus. There's confidence and there's the full assurance to draw near to God. But if you don't have that cleansing, if you don't have that freedom, if you haven't been washed any longer, verse 31, it's a dreadful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. I mean, we all know now after the Ocean Gate submarine disaster, what happens to a human when they're experiencing the environment of the pressure of 10,000 feet underwater, it's an unpleasant thing. But imagine a human being in the hands of the living God without the protection and provision 
of the grace of Jesus. Now, I don't want everyone in here this morning who still sins to think they should have that fearful expectation of what awaits them. That lack of confidence is reserved for those who have given up on Christ because every single person who's following Christ in here today still falls short and still needs grace. But what the writer is saying, if you look at it, is that there's ample evidence that some of the Hebrews had given up or were about to give up entirely on Jesus. What was the evidence? What was the science? Because faith can be this very, like, you know, metaphysical thing. It's like, what is faith? I have faith. Do you have faith? No, there's evidence that things are going astray here in the lives of these early believers. They're not meeting together anymore. You know, they're starting to dabble with, maybe they're starting to toy with going back to the old sacrifices, this other religious system. And some of them had just outright embraced a lifestyle of sin. And you add up all that evidence together and you can see that they've either begun to reject Jesus or they're beginning to toy with the idea. So let me clarify. Jesus isn't looking. God isn't looking for us to achieve perfection so that we can have boldness and confidence before him. And that's the only ones that are in. And if you're not perfect, then you're going to experience this fire. No, Jesus is the only one who has achieved He's the only one who is perfect, but God wants us to pursue Christ's perfection, which assumes some error on our part. We're not going to arrive at it, but we're going to pursue. There is some error along the way. It's like if I'm going on a path, I've got my destination. I'm on the trail, right? Jesus calls it the narrow road. I'm walking that road. I fall. I'm going to fall. Everybody falls on the trail, but what do you do? Do you change directions? You're going to get back up. You're going to keep moving in the same direction. Sure, you're pulling on the line. You're in that tug-of-war battle with everybody else around you. And do your feet slip? Sure, but do you find your grounding and begin to pull again? And just as there was evidence that some had given up that pursuit, that some had let go of the line, that they started turning around and going the other direction, so the writer reminds the believers of the evidence. There was evidence of their former pursuit. There was evidence. You could see concrete things that meant that their faith was alive, that they should have confidence and full assurance in Jesus. And again, he doesn't say, when he's adding up the evidence, you guys were perfect, and you never did anything wrong, and you were sinless, and that's what gave you that boldness and assurance. No. But what he describes is some battle-hardened, hardy disciples who were doers of the Word of God. Verse 32, remember the early days, guys? You endured wild conflict. There was public humiliation, insult, persecution for your faith. People made fun of you. They canceled you. You were the butt of every joke. And when someone else was put on blast, you didn't put your head down and just try and blend in with the crowd. You took the shame that they were experiencing on yourself. You stood shoulder to shoulder. And when someone was thrown in prison, you didn't neglect and forget those who were suffering. You went and visited them. You were associated with them. You suffered. You gave up. You had your property confiscated, but you didn't care. You joyfully gave it up when the state and when society unjustly stole your stuff because you knew you had better possessions in heaven. They were bold, sacrificial, empowered, unafraid, vocal, and confident. He's saying, remember those days and don't toss away that confidence. Don't toss away that assurance that you were living in. Persevere toward your reward. And that's my message for all of us this morning. I've got three things that I want to leave us with as we consider the teaching here in the second half of Hebrews chapter 10. And the first 
principle that I want to leave you with is this. Stand firm in the full assurance that comes through faith in Jesus. Stand firm. That's the name of this series. And the call of this passage is, first of all, to stand firm in the full assurance, the confidence that comes through faith in Jesus. No more fear for us in Christ. No more fearful expectation. No more guilt Because when we doubt our ability to be received by God, to enjoy the promises of heaven, to draw near into his presence, when we doubt our ability to do that, it's not us that we're doubting, though we often couch it in that. It's the sacrifice of Christ and its sufficiency that we're actually doubting. That was something I had to learn. Let me illustrate that. Maybe that didn't make sense for you, but that was something I had to learn early on in my faith journey. Because I gave my life to the Lord, and then I found out I was still falling short. And then I still found out there was sin in my life. And I wasn't measuring up. And so I'm constantly going before God, going, God, did it work? Am I actually in? Do you really receive me? Is heaven for me? Or am I going to be rejected? And is this fire reserved for me? Because I still don't measure up. Right? And and I kept praying that. And it was all this like self-doubt and self-criticism that I'm constantly bringing before God. And it's all about me, 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 and how much I lack. And I just felt like there was a day the Holy Spirit just convicted me, spoke to me in my heart. It was like I heard God's voice say to me, almost in an offended way. I mean, like a fatherly offense is the way that God spoke to me. Like, Andrew, who do you think you are? Who do you think you are? You're couching that, like, I can't accept you. You're not going to receive heaven because of all your flaws. You're making it about you. But when you make it about you, you're actually invalidating me and the sufficiency of my sacrifice on the cross. When you say you're so bad and you fall so short and you need so much grace that I don't have it for you, you're saying that my son giving up his life wasn't enough to compensate for your sin. You're offending me by living in that place of self-doubt. Isn't that a wild thing to think? And from that point on, I changed my mind. And I didn't change my mind, and my heart didn't change because I thought all of a sudden, oh, now I'm so much better. Now I'm going to get it right. No, I'm going to understand the sufficiency of God's grace afforded in the sacrifice of Christ. Now I'm going to live with boldness. Now I'm going to live with confidence. Now I'm going to live assured. And guys, that's the beginning point of everything else that we're going to do in our faith. It's like Paul says elsewhere in the scriptures, if God is for us, who can be against us? When you know that God has invited you to draw near and that you're on that firm foundation of what Christ has established in his grace and he's sufficient and now you're good with God and your conscience is cleansed, now you're free to do something. Now you're free to live for Christ. Now you're not afraid of the future. Now you're not wondering if God's got your back when circumstances are challenging. No, you are freed. So I'm I'm praying for that this morning, that there's some of you that are just racked with guilt. You're just cycling again and again and again over the same, am I included, am I not? Can I feel secure like I feel at home? Yes. And I pray that the Lord would make that shift in your heart and it'd be done. And now you just know you're in. And you know you're at home with your Heavenly Father and you don't need to avoid and you don't need to discount yourself, not because of you, but because of the sufficiency of Jesus. That you would stand firm in that. And we need you to stand firm in that. Because of my second point here, derived from Hebrews 10. We need you to stand firm in the assuredness that you have in Christ because your personal faith, it affects every other person around you. Your personal faith. We always talk about the personal faith. I brought it up earlier. 
I want you to know your personal faith and your standing and your assuredness and level of confidence, it affects every other person around you. When you write yourself out or off, when you become embittered or you fall into sin or stop showing up, the weight increases for all of us. We have a great responsibility on our shoulders and a great opportunity. We have the ability to spur each other on. We have the calling to spur each other on. Or we can scorn. And you can lie to yourself. This is a common lie in our individualistic society. Oh, but it's just me. It's only me that I'm hurting. When I phone it in, when I check out, when I go on autopilot, when I don't show up, when I'm not present, guess what? It's only me I'm hurting. It's my life. It doesn't have to do with anybody else's life. It doesn't hurt anybody but me. Guys, have you read the Bible? We are the body of Christ. We are the temple by which God dwells in His Holy Spirit. We have been given gifts to build each other up. We are called to keep on meeting together. We are the ones that are going to be spurring each other on and encouraging one another. Don't you see this dynamic, this interplay of our personal faiths affecting all the persons around us? Don't you see it just on the scale of your own family? If somebody in your family unit, either one you grew up in or the one that you're a part of right now, if somebody in your family unit phoned it in, did it just affect them? Was it just, oh, that's just their personal life. It's just where they're at. They're just going through something. It doesn't have anything to do with anybody else. If dad doesn't show up, if dad phones in his responsibilities, he's checked out. He's, oh, pity me. I'm going through all these things. It affects much more than just dad. Everybody else has to pick up the slack in that family unit. Same thing with mom. Same thing even with the kids in the family, right? And that's the same dynamic with your roommates. That's the same dynamic in your friendship group. It's the same dynamic in the family of God. When you don't show up, when you don't hold the line, when you phone it in, when your personal faith is suffering, it's going to have an effect on all those around us. And maybe we don't see the effect because you never brought the positive but that positive could have been there, and we suffer for the lack of it. That dynamic is going on in families right now, and that's certainly going on in the family of God right now across America. There are people phoning it in and people thinking, oh, it's just my personal faith and I'm not taking it seriously. It's affecting every person around you. Wake up. Hold the line. Pull on the rope. And my final question then is, are you polling? Examine the evidence of your faith. Where are you at with Jesus? The writer of Hebrews examined the faith. He's saying, look what these guys are doing. It can tell me something's amiss in their relationship with God. They're not living into their confidence and the full assurance. And remember what you used to do. There was evidence, right? We don't need perfectionism in terms of, you know, search the evidence of your life. If you're not perfect, then you're not in. Jesus is the only one who's perfect. We don't need a spirit of achievement here. That's not what I'm saying. Jesus is the only one who's achieved. But we do need some battle-hardened, hardy disciples of Jesus who are willing to stand up, who are willing to sacrifice, who are willing to be vocal, who are willing to serve, who are willing to reach out, open their doors, lead the discipleship groups, lead the community groups, continue to invest in our ministry partnerships, continue to do good, love, and good deeds amongst our neighbors. You're sitting in seats right now, but that is not a good spiritual metaphor for the body of Christ being seated in a seat. And it's like this modern entertainment model of church has turned in so many places across this country. It's turned the seats into recliners. And everybody's just kind of checked out and spiritually asleep. No, the Lord has called us to pursue his perfection, to have movement 
toward the path that he has given us. To not give it up, that confidence, and throw it aside and shrink back, but to push forward. So examine the evidence of your own faith. Examine the evidence of your life. Where are you at with Jesus? Are you pulling on the line with the people around you? And I don't say that to discourage you, but maybe it does sober you up. And there's nothing wrong with being sober. There's a lot that's right with being sober and just seeing things how they are. Maybe when you're sobered up, you realize, man, I need encouragement. I need to be built up. And that's what I want to do this morning. I want to apply what's talked about here. And I know we're a little bit later in our service, but there's no reason why we read this whole thing and then we don't practice what we've been reading. We want to be doers of God's word just as they were. And there's people who need encouragement this morning and the body is together. We're to spur one another on toward love and good deeds. So I want to pray for you and I want to give you an opportunity to be prayed for. If you need encouragement this morning, I'm going to leave it that broad because I want to pray for as many of you as possible. If you just need encouragement this morning, would you stand? Would you stand to receive prayer? Thank you. I love that response. Just don't qualify it anymore. I don't need to qualify it. The Lord is already speaking to your heart. And I told you, this is that like spiritual AA meeting. There's nobody in here who's like, oh, I got it. Every single one of us has been weak and every single one of us has needed someone who's stronger, someone who's in a healthy place to speak life into us. Maybe it's because of your circumstances, something you're going through, a challenge that you're facing. Maybe it's just you're not pulling the weight and you're realizing you're not pulling the weight and you don't even know what's going on in your own life, but you're coming up short and other people are picking up the slack and you just, instead of being beat up, you know, you need encouragement. You need to be built up so that you can take the line again. I don't know what it is, but if you need encouragement this morning, for any reason at all, would you stand? Would you stand so that we can do what the passage has called us to do? And you're not surprising anyone and you're not shocking anyone. This isn't out of the ordinary. This is the normal thing that the family of God does when we get together. We pray for each other. We build each other up. We spur one another on toward love and good deeds. So give us the opportunity. If you need prayer, don't miss it. That's another way that you can just phone it in. No, I know I need it, but I'm just going to... I'm just going to stay seated. Well, then you're still not going to be holding on the line. You're still going to be checked out. So please, please, if you need prayer, give us the opportunity to pray for you this morning. Thank you. I just want to invite those who are seated around those who are standing to see those who are standing and to come around them. We all have a part to play. Maybe you came this morning and the Lord wants to encourage you. Maybe the Lord wants to use you as an encourager. And there's some areas in the room where there's more people standing together and there's the possibility that they'll have less people standing with them. So if you need to move around the room, if you see people who need others around them, just move around the room. We have that ability to not use these recliners to be active. Let's come around those who've asked for encouragement. Ask them if it's okay. Can I place a hand on you? Ask them if, you know, well, how can I pray for you to be encouraged? Maybe they say, just pray for me. I can't get into it. It's a long story. Maybe they want to just tell you, hey, I just need encouragement here or there. 
And let's begin to pray. You can pray simple prayers. It doesn't have to be these elaborate prayers just for the Lord to minister, for the Lord to fill them with confidence and boldness, to restore them. I just want to encourage you, begin to pray out loud. And if if you need prayer and you don't have anyone around you, if you just want to raise your hand and say, you know, I need some more people around me right now. Let's make sure everyone's being prayed for. Let's spend some time ministering to each other this morning. In a posture of receiving this blessing that I'm going to pray over us as a church family. Heavenly Father, I pray for this precious fellowship branches uh, that you would lead us by the empowerment of your Holy Spirit to, to never phone it in, to never just be checked out, to never let go of the line the divine purpose that you've given us. Lord, let this be a community of, of constant and continual encouragement. Would we show up and show up for each other as an expression of our faithfulness and our desire to follow after you in response to your exceeding faithfulness to all of us? Lord, would you spur us on toward the purpose that you designed us for? Would we spur one another on and would we greatly encourage each other? In Jesus' name, amen.